0: Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Craig Thompson, CEO at Saravance. Thanks for joining us today, Craig. Great, thanks for having me, pleasure to be here. Great, so Craig, to kick us off and to set context for the conversation, talk to us about the arc of your career, how you got interested in biotech and what got you to where you are today.
1: Yeah, I think a career that's familiar to lots and probably unfamiliar to many. So currently the CEO of Sarah Vance, but go back a few years, it's got more than five. I started off working at Merck in the regional vaccine role, talking to the CDC about new vaccines that Merck was bringing forward at that point, and then had a fairly traditional operational development through Merck and stayed with Sam for about 12 years. Then at that point, moved over to Pfizer. Um, and I think it was a really, for me, a really nice transition. Merck is a highly structured company, Pfizer tends to be a little less structured, so it was a really nice going from a highly structured organization to a less structured organization. I spent about nine years at Pfizer. A couple of different positions I had there. At one point, I headed up allergy, respiratory, pulmonary vascular disease, and inflammation with research and development, out line reporting into me, and saw a line of commercial And then my last role at Pfizer was actually VP of Marketing for Specialty Care in North America. And then I made the change to biotech. And for me, I wasn't necessarily looking to move to biotech. But at that particular time, Pfizer had just done an acquisition with Wyeth, And they were moving our special care business unit to Pennsylvania. It just seemed like a right time to, you know, try a different opportunity. So I ended up going to work at Trius Therapeutics an antibiotic company when antibiotics weren't in fashion. And we moved forward with developing a compound and eventually ended up selling the company to Kibis. And then Kibis was ultimately bought by Merck. From there, I went to another antibiotic company, Tetraphase, thinking that all biotechs had to be, you know, you go in, you're there three years, it gets sold. Apparently, that's not the way it works. So at TetraPhase, we had one phase three trial that came out that looked very positive. And then we were running our second phase three trial and unfortunately missed the endpoint on that particular study. And from all the things I was working on, they were ready to go from a launch perspective, medical affairs perspective. So I decided to move on to the the next adventure and did that really a couple of times until I ended up at Saravance. It's been a really unique opportunity just to going through different companies, different cultures and bringing drugs forward both on the public company side as well as the uh, private company side. Great. And Craig, talk to us a little bit about what that transition for you was like
0: going from, you know, big pharma to biotech and what were some of those learnings along the way, particularly in your first
1: gig in biotech? It was actually a great experience. So I left my last day at Pfizer was the December 31st. Started with the new organization on second week of January at J.P. Morgan. And my intro to biotech was at J.P. Morgan. And it was such a great experience. Our CEO, Jeff Stein, just an absolute great mentor. What he was able to do was we were doing some investor meetings and I remember him sitting after about three meetings, he's turned to me and said, Hey Craig, you haven't said anything yet. I was like, Well, you haven't given me all the q and you know, the proper way to answer questions. And at that point he just turned to me and said, You know what you're doing. You know how to talk about antibiotic development. You know what all of our plans are. Get engaged in the conversation. it was so odd because I had 20 years of experience telling me that, you know, there was a script that you could follow that had been legally approved of what you couldn't can say. All of a sudden it was go tell everyone what you're really doing without a script. So I think that was really a liberating experience for me. And then I went back to the office on the first time and I had a couple hundred people in my group when I left Pfizer, a couple billion dollars worth of revenue in my group and joined a company as the 53rd employee with no one in the commercial operations team, so it was an empty desk. So it was a one of those moments, I think, when you look back and you ask yourself, what am I doing? And I think to me, it was one of those opportunities. I said, what a great opportunity to start building something forward and building a real future with the company and in biotech. If there are folks
0: that are listening that are you know, thinking about starting off their career in life sciences, either going towards big pharma or into the current biotech ecosystem, I'm curious, given where biotech is now, what advice do you generally provide folks that are thinking about that decision?
1: Yeah, so my general advice is, and it follows the same path that I took, is if you can start at a big pharma, I think it gives you a real wealth of knowledge of seeing how different organizations work. Your career progression generally is going to be a little bit slower than it's going to be at a biotech, but it gives you really deep knowledge of exactly how does drug development work? How do you bring all those different resources together? You know, when I look at some of the programs we're running right now and make you know some of the decisions that we have to make, a lot of those are based on learnings that I had 15, 20 Years ago, I would highly encourage people to at least get a get a taste of the big pharma. For some people, it's an absolute the right place for them, and others they learn you know pretty quickly that you know maybe that's not the right place for them. And now, going from big pharma to biotech
0: and then ascending to the CEO seat, what were some of the perhaps non obvious learnings that took you by surprise when you became CEO for the first time, or things that you perhaps just hadn't anticipated or
1: appreciated? Yeah, I think part of it is you always get an uh, appreciation for it as you're going through your career, but there's the amount of time that you spend with investors in the street and analysts, and you always look at something that probably takes 20% of your time, but it actually takes you know quite a bit more of your time. And then the other big one is when you're CEO is just the amount of time that you spend with your board, making sure that they're fully up to speed, that they're fully engaged in all the programs that you're moving forward with, not obviously innovating them, but making sure that when there's critical decisions that you involve them and get their breadth of insight and really understand that they bring value value to you. And I've you know, run across so many CEOs who complain about their boards and it's, you know, my current board is absolutely fantastic and they tend to be more thought partners. And I think part of the reason is we engage them as thought partners as opposed to approvers. It's a great point. And now given your you know, marketing and commercial
0: background, and now at a company that's in an early stage development, talk a little bit about how that your prior experience lends itself well to your current role and also you know when you've seen folks that perhaps are in ceo roles at early stage biotechs that primarily have a scientific background what are some of the not necessarily gaps but what are the holes that folks need to think about and fill accordingly
1: yeah so i think looking at pharma and biotech in particular it's but getting a rounded experience. And that was one of the things that I always did, both when I was at Merck, Pfizer, and now into biotech, was, you know, I took the unusual path of moving from doing a field sales role at Merck, for example. And from there I went directly into the global group and worked on a pre-launch. So all my experiences post that field sales opportunity had all worked in the development space. So I worked on a, a drug called Propicia for male pattern baldness, which was a completely new area for Merck. And you know, when I took the job, a lot of people were like, why are you working on this? This is not the core of what Merck does. And to me, that's what I think makes it different. It makes it fun, is you can find those unique opportunities, engage in those, and really drive your learning. But also, drive value for the company. And yeah. since then, I worked on other products like Proscar, which was already on the market. But, you know, how do we bring additional studies to get physicians excited about the product? A lot on antibiotics. Some of the antibiotics I to say now that are going off patent, like are on the fungal side, Kensitis, which was a, a breakthrough product as an Akinocandid antifungal. Invance was a great carbapenem antibiotic. And the places that provide great societal value. You can get really passionate about medications that you're working on, designing the the right trials and working with the clinical team to make sure that not only the right trials for the patients, physicians, but also for the payers. Great point. And Craig, your first foray into biotech was in
0: 2011-ish timeframe. I'm curious to hear your observations around how the biotech ecosystem has changed over the last 12 years, and also what are opportunities and challenges ahead in our space? So
1: I think it's changed a lot in the past decade. So reimbursement, I think, has come more front and center of late. So it was always part of the discussion. I would say probably in the last five to six years, you're getting a lot more questions from investors on reimbursement when you're in phase two and even in phase one. So it used to be more reserved for phase three. So that's definitely changed the question. And then I think the other big change is trying to find ways to move products from target identification through molecule development to the clinic as quick as possible. And what are the studies that you can do? Are there innovative ways to do those studies? Make sure you get all the right studies done, obviously, but are there ways to start employing artificial intelligence? Are there ways to start running things more in parallel and trying to de-risk programs as quick as possible? And so now before we jump
0: into the work that you're pursuing now at Saravans, if you could just talk to us about the current CNS landscape as you see it and perhaps what's been changing in that landscape. And you mentioned AI, you know, the intersection of biotech
1: and AI as well. Yeah, so I think we're seeing a lot of changes and you know, hopefully changes for the good. So continue to see nice progress in the Alzheimer's field. It was ASI's recent approval. You know, it's probably not the last Alzheimer's drug that we're going to have moving forward, but at least it's a step in the right direction. So applaud all my colleagues in CNS drug development that are working in CNS. It is a high-risk area. The brain is super complex but you know we need new developments both for Alzheimer's, ALS, FTD, Parkinson's, even things like schizophrenia, all very complex diseases that we need more investment in and um, in trying to move it forward. I think what's really helped of late is, as you mentioned, the intersection of biology and AI. So we're now able to model things much quicker, potentially look for adverse events much quicker and start helping us Or we're using in silico techniques to start designing drugs much quicker and that particularly bind in a particular way that's going to be helpful to us. And from a capital markets perspective, have you
0: observed any changes in the funding environment within CNS? And what are you hoping for moving forward as well?
1: Yeah, I think of late, probably the CNS funding has decreased. As you know, the overall markets of biotech over the past year has been pretty hard hit with a lot of companies trading well below enterprise value, which makes you know nice opportunities for investors. But you're seeing more opportunistic investments, I would say, of late. We're starting to see investors starting to kind of re-engage with some of the earlier stage companies. For us at Cerevance, we're a little unique in that we cross both as a platform target discovery all the way through phase two. So we don't fit the typical biotech in a particular segment. And I would say that's been a little bit more challenging to get investors to look at how do we put additional capital work in early discovery as well as new programs forward in later discovery. Great.
0: And so with that
1: background, let's
0: talk about Saravant
1: and where you are now from a development
0: perspective, how large is the team and so on? Yeah. So
1: CeraVance is a absolutely fantastic company. I joined the team just under a year ago. Currently, we have 53 employees, really large group in Cambridge, UK, and then the development operations staff in the US. If you would have looked at the company three years ago, you would have looked at it as a strict platform company. But I think what's unique about CeraVance is we've been able to take the platform that we've developed and actually brought out real molecules that are entering phase two, phase three, and one entering phase one. So we really bridged away from being a platform company into a development company. I think what makes CeraVance particularly unique is the way we approach artificial intelligence. So you'll find a lot of companies that are built around AI machine learning. The way we've actually approached CeraVance is really to look at how can we try and use typical biology in a novel fashion. So we use postmortem human brain tissue. And I think the secret sauce, if you will, what makes CeraVance unique is we're able to extract about twelve to 15,000 genes per cell. So we can look at genes that are not deep, not overly expressed, but we can look at the expression over time because we've collected so many postmortem human brain tissue.
0: And right now, Craig, how are you thinking about team building particularly in a pandemic or perhaps approaching post-pandemic world, and, you know, your approach to cultural congruency as it relates to where your teams are located.
1: Yeah. So we do try and bring teams together virtually a few times a week. You know, obviously something we need to continue to work on. I think post-COVID, the world has completely changed. as probably everyone has seen. And when you're looking at new employees, you know, some want to come into the office, days a week and others are very explicit that they have no intent in coming in the office and for us it's really about finding that right balance of finding the individual that obviously has the right scientific background but also has the right cultural fit of it's a team sport biotech and we need to act together as a team and sometimes we can do that virtually sometimes we need to do that in person and to me that's the part of the culture that we're going to continue to work on is making sure that we can get people to work more in a a team fashion. We already do that really well, but how do we push that a little bit further and make sure that people aren't afraid to take risks, that we need to look at novel approaches and novel ideas and novel ways to do clinical trials so that we can get to the answer quicker. And sometimes we don't like the answer, but at least we can get there quicker.
0: Yeah, On the point of risk, obviously risk is inherent in everything we do within drug development and you've been involved in successes as well as failures as it relates to assets progressing to market. Two questions. One is how do you manage the ups and downs of development given this inherent risk? And then for perhaps folks that are on your team that haven't been through the same number of lumps as you have, how do you then communicate that effectively so that folks get it?
1: Yeah, when you look back at it, some of the greatest lessons you learn are from the failures. And, you know, go back to one of the the largest failures. I was heading up the Tricetrapib development team at Pfizer. For those who aren't aware of it, go back in the history books, and it was a, CETP inhibitor to raise HDL first one of the, the class and was supposed to transform Pfizer. We found in one of our large morbidity mortality trials that there was a mortality imbalance. So that program came to a screeching halt, but some of the analyst forecasts were in the 25 to 35 billion in annual sales. So it wasn't a small, and to me it was really, but how do you deal with that change? You know, obviously once we saw that there was a imbalance, the program came to a screeching halt, but then how do you make sure that that gets through the organization? Because we made the right decision, made it very quickly based on the data, but then was able to re-pick up the organization and move forward and really focus on that didn't work. What else can we do in the future to make sure things work? We also pick up lessons of product doesn't work. Or it has an adverse event that's not acceptable to patients and physicians. Stop it. Don't wish that it's going to get better because it won't need to stop that program. Move on to the next one. I think that's really hard for a lot of people to do. When you see a signal of something, it probably means something's going to come true. And I've really taken that forward as we look at, you know, all of the compounds that we move forward with current company Saravance. One of the things that really attracted me to the company was they're developing or we're developing a Parkinson's drug that did a phase two A study. The company. At that point, did this study in 27 days versus the usual 12 weeks, like a more all-comers approach. So they truly tested the drug to its limit to see if it had effects on Parkinson's patients. And you saw that within 27 days. Yeah. And to me, that really spoke to the spirit of a company I wanted to join, it was a company that you know doesn't only talk like, let's push our compounds hard and see if they work or they don't work. They actually did it. Uh, so to yeah. me, that was really inspiring to seeing a company that's willing to take those risks, and really challenge the products, make sure that they're going to drive the efficacy and the safety that patients and physicians deserve. Yeah. I'm curious, Craig,
0: in the current environment, you know, we're going through a bit of a correction in biotech right now. Given your background on dealmaking side, how do you think about M&A activity and partnerships? And, and what's your own kind of mental model for when is the right time for a company to think about partnerships?
1: So i think a lot of it depends on when you look at the development program so you are seeing a lot of larger mid-sized pharma waiting to a little bit later so willing to pay a little bit more for additional data and de-risking it it also has to do with you know some of the challenges when i was back at Pfizer Merck, and we would buy a company we then had to usually deprioritize an internal asset to fund the additional develop so part of it is the acquiring companies model the way they're set up and the other is they want to buy a de-risked asset so you are seeing it moving a little bit later and the other is looking at your own company realistically. What is the right time for you to partner? So for Sarah Vance, we made from a platform company. We're now moving into the development phase. Yes, we're going to get ready to commercialize. It's unlikely that we could do a worldwide commercial launch on our own. It'd be great if we could unlikely that yeah. we could build from, you know, 53 up to, you know, 2000 employees in three years. Yeah. So I think part of that is that looking at what your skills are versus where can a partner bring in additional skills as well? And then the other point to that is in CNS, some of the studies are just large studies. So if you look at the Alzheimer's studies for that one, we would probably look to partner a little bit earlier just because they're large studies and we could use the partnership of a mid-sized large pharma company to help us drive those through the finish line. And you know, on the same topic of the current environment,
0: how are you thinking about threading that needle, if you will, around driving execution while retaining optionality and keeping fixed costs low i'd love to hear your perspective and, and any guidance you may have
1: yeah so execution is always you know kind of number one but execution i think comes in many flavors so for our uh, drug and the negative symptoms of schizophrenia you know we're looking at various options of could we do a four-week proof of concepts obviously it's harder to see treatment in schizophrenic uh, patients in four weeks eight weeks is kind of a, a more traditional study 12 weeks even more but start looking at what has everyone else done so how can you Ask that question of, is there a placebo run-in we could do? Is there an active compare that we could put in that would give us more confidence? So really trying to push the thinking around, maybe it's not the norm, but could we actually do it and get a positive signal to move forward? The second piece of the equation is also just from a resource deployment. So, from a, a fixed cost perspective, we try and keep our teams relatively slim and then bring in resources to supplement the teams as we need them. So, like a lot of biotechs, we'll use CROs. We have a great example for our Parkinson's compound where the CRO that we're working with is really good at operational logistics. But the particular skill that we needed for study that we want to run, they were good, but we were looking for great. So we actually tied in another CRO to help out with that piece that they had a I want to say a weakness, but probably just weren't as strong on. So it's about the old style of, you know, going to the cafeteria menu of, you know, I want this and this from this CRO and I want this and this from this CRO or vendor and building up the teams more virtually so that you can scale them up if you need to or decrease the size if you need to. I'm curious, why do you think more biotechs
0: don't try to execute in that way, particularly as it relates to external providers?
1: So I think part of it goes back to a lot of biotech people come from big pharma. And big pharma, you generally get rewarded on the size of your team and people like to be, build big teams. To me, that's not why you're in biotech. You should be in biotech because you want to drive and improve patients' lives. So if your goal is to build a big team, probably more suited for big pharma. If your goal is to, you know, truly drive changes in patients' lives for the better at a quick pace and not worried about, you know, do I have that that big team behind me, but how do I most effectively do it? You know, biotech's probably a better spot. I think we've observed a bit of a change
0: in mental health awareness over the last several years. I'm curious what you're hoping, given your vantage point, what still needs to change as it relates to mental health and perhaps broadly CNS that we should all be be thinking about?
1: Yeah, so I think there's been some great fundamental changes. I think one of the biggest one is just destigmatizing mental health. It's a disease and we need to treat it as a disease and get away from putting stigmas around it. So I think that's already well under its way. The other point is, you know, we need from a a mental health perspective, more intake facilities for patients. We have to realize that every patient is a unique patient. Everyone has their own story, their own journey. And so many times when you're having discussions around mental health, it tends to be people lumping everyone together versus looking at them as individuals and, you know, what do we need to help that person on their journey back to recovery? That's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up,
0: actually. My wife's a psychiatrist, and we we quite often talk about what we're seeing, but how much more work there is to be done, because there hasn't been great awareness
1: on this topic forever. You you see it kind of exploding across U.S. cities with the homeless population increasing. One of the things we always do as a family is we volunteer at one of the food pantries, which caters mostly to homeless and low-income. It's about engaging, even when you're giving out food, but how do you engage with people as individuals? And take it away you know even when we're down there you sometimes get frustrated with people just about handing out things but it's about how do you engage with them as people and sometimes that's the only person they're going to talk to that day yeah it was certainly top of mind after our recent trip to jpm yeah, it is.
0: great well craig before we let you go if i could ask you to reflect on your own personal journey and given all that you've experienced over your career what's one piece
1: of advice you wish you could provide your younger self Don't be afraid to take the path less traveled. We find so many people that look and say, what does my career path look like? Your career path should be your career path. It's your journey. And look at life, you know, I think the way you should, which is life is a journey, not a destination. Mm -hmm. And make sure that you pick that path. And sometimes people look at you and say, why did you do that? You have a passion towards it. So that's why the advice I give to myself is just continue to take that path less traveled. Make sure you're passionate about what you do and have fun. And don't take yourself too seriously, by the way.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's always a good one. (laughs) Well, Craig, thanks for joining us today for sharing some of the exciting work that you and your colleagues are are pursuing at Saravans and and wishing you success as you move into the clinic. Great,
1: thanks so much and great seeing you today.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.